I was told that I could preach as long as I want to, as long as I was through at 1110. That's always interesting, too. I want to make a reference or two for us to begin to prepare our minds for what I believe is one of the most tremendous things that we could ever think about, the grace of God. In that marvelous fifth chapter of Romans, beginning at verse 12, the word of God tells us, Wherefore, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And then there's a long parenthesis, and then the topic is continued with verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men on the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's bow our heads in just a moment of prayer. Our wonderful Lord, we ask that thou will sensitize us to spiritual impression, and we pray that the soft life of the one who ministers will be lost in the message. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Obviously, the subject of grace is much larger than we could possibly consider in whatever time we were given, because from Genesis all the way through to the great apocalyptic vision of John, we find manifestations of the grace of God. In Jeremiah 3.12, the prophet is told, Go, proclaim these words toward the north, and say, Return thou, backslider Israel, saith the Lord. For I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful. The word translated merciful in Jeremiah 3.12 is the counterpart of the New Testament word translated grace. God affirmed that he is a God of grace and that that grace is abundant. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And yet there's probably no word that is so little understood. And of course it was the meaning, the true meaning of this word that caused a young lonely monk 34 years of age on October the 31st, way back in 1517, to take a hammer and with quick driving blows nail his 95 articles to his church door, articles of faith. In effect, crying out, the war is on, the struggle for the authority of the word of God has begun, the battle for the restoration of faith in Jesus Christ as the world's savior. That young man was Martin Luther. And the burden that crushed his soul was the age-old question of blind groping, how must I ever appease the wrath of a holy God? 
How can I find release from the consequences of my sin? Where can I discover the assurance of forgiveness and the hope of heaven? The late Dr. Walter Meyer said young Luther had earned his doctor's degree, and yet he did not know the first and fundamental truth of the Christian faith. He was a theological professor, but he could not teach the simplest gospel lesson. Lashed by the unrelieved desire to find a very gracious God and to feel the sense of pardon for his sins, he dedicated himself and his energies and the resources of his amazing intellect to a relentless program of earning his own salvation. He wrote concerning the struggle, For almost 15 years I wore myself out with self-sacrifice, tormenting myself with fasting, vigils, prayers, and every other burdensome task with the idea of attaining righteousness by my works. He said, I spent almost half of every year in fasting and sleepless watching until my brothers in the monastery regarded me as a haggard and emaciated wonder. He confessed, if it had lasted much longer, I would have martyred myself to death. Nevertheless, he declared he would have gladly given his life to have his sins removed and his conscience cleared. And then, while reading the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, something glorious happened. And by the way, he never realized fully the implication of his discovery. The mist cleared as he expressed it, and for the first time he found that the just shall live by faith and not by works. And the light grew brighter as he delved deeper and deeper into the treasury of New Testament mercies, and then he seized the blessed assurance that he found in the text, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And indeed... He was born into the newness of an unswerving trust in the love and the mercy and the grace of our wonderful Lord. At last he knew the meaning of grace, the undeserved mercy of a loving God. And now, he said, as he beheld the cross, he realized that sins which he could never remove had been washed away by the blood of the dying Savior. And that this full and final cleansing, the free gift of divine mercy, was his by faith. Under that all positive promise, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bucer, and all the other leading Protestant reformers came to this same conviction with Martin Luther. The conviction for what we now know, the Protestant Reformation, the restoration at last of the authority of Scripture, the commitment to sola scriptura, the Scriptures alone. It was Dwight L. Moody who suggested that for many years men were constantly trying to find the source of the Nile. But of infinitely greater importance, said the great evangelist, is the river of grace that has been flowing for 6,000 years. And we certainly ought to be anxious to find out its source than to ever discover the source of the Nile. And then he declared, if you read your Bible carefully, you will find that this wonderful river of grace has its origin in the heart of God. And as we know, even as the headwaters of a river originating in the mountain may wend its way through the barren wastes of a desert, inevitably as it flows along, both sides of the river will be seen bearing profuse life and vegetation.
And so it is the grace of God with its message of hope and life flows through the bleak, barren desert of a lost humanity. And you can trace its source right up to the very heart of God. And interestingly, grace always flows down. So grace has its origin in God's great heart of love as his love is bestowed upon undeserving sinners. And that brings us to the definition of grace. Peter calls God the God of all grace. If a businessman goes to a bank to borrow $5,000 for 60 or 90 days, if he has sufficient equity, the bank may immediately make him the loan. But if not, they may suggest that he get a responsible person to sign the note with him. Because that person may have the kind of equity the bank desires. But of course, they will make the borrower pay the payments. And if he does not meet the terms of the note on the day that it is due, many times a bank will give what they call three days of grace. But if he does not return the principal and the interest by the end of that three-day period, they will foreclose on the note and sell as much of his assets as they can, if necessary, even his home, anything of value that he might possess. And isn't it interesting that that is the idea that many people have of grace? This fairly illustrates man's idea of grace. But grace from the perspective of divine revelation not only frees us from the obligation of the payment and of the interest, but from the entire principle. It is the free gift of God. The entire debt is canceled. That's right what the Apostle Paul puts to his pen when he says, and when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. The Greek Croesus tells us something interesting. He says that any document was canceled by simply putting a nail through it. And so the debt of our sin was canceled by the nails that were driven by the Calvarian murderers through the hands and feet of our matchless Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote 14 epistles, and every one of them closes with a prayer for grace. Grace beyond you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always upon every remembrance of you. And then he goes on to close that letter by saying, I thank my God on behalf of the grace of God which is given you by Christ Jesus. You see, the essence of grace is that it's free. If grace were an obligation on God's part, it would no longer be grace. But it is God's divine freedom that allows God to be gracious to us. He's not forced to sow grace. He does so freely. Wrote Robert Dale, grace is love which passes beyond all claims to love. It is love which, after fulfilling the obligations imposed upon it by law, has an unexhausted wealth of kindness. My favorite professor during my seminary days, Dr. John Champion, 
wrote, Grace is love at work in redemption, love carrying on in spite of sin, love reaching down to the level of the unworthy and the guilty. H.W. Griffith Thomas said, It's God's mercy pitying, it's God's wisdom planning, it's God's power preparing, it's God's love providing. And Schofield said, Grace is an English word used in the New Testament to translate the word charis, which means favor without recompense. If there is any compensatory act or payment, however slight or inadequate, it is no more grace. When used to denote a certain attitude or act of God toward man, it is of the very essence of the matter that human merit or desert is utterly excluded. And so if grace acts out from God himself toward those who have nothing to deserve but his wrath, then we understand the meaning of grace. It's interesting that in the plan of the epistle to the Ephesians, I'm sure guided by the Spirit of God as the Apostle Paul's pen flamed, grace doesn't enter. And grace could not enter until the whole race without one single exception stood guilty and speechless before God. And this makes us aware of some basic truths that the doctrine of grace presupposes. First of all, the fall of man. The tragedy of man's predicament in sin began, of course, as we know, with his rebellion against God in Eden, his disobedience, where the word of God tells us in the scripture we read a moment ago, wherefore by one man sin entered the world, death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. And as the apostle graphically describes man's fallen state, his depravity, in those very first chapters of Romans, he tells us that man is condemned by creation, the silent testimony of the universe, by willful ignorance, the loss of the knowledge of God that was once universal, by senseless idolatry, by a manner of life worse than bestial, by godless pride and cruelty, by philosophical moralizing which had no fruit in life, by consciences which could only accuse or seek to excuse but never justify. And finally, by the very law in which those who have the law boast, Romans 2.17 and 3.20, every mouth is stopped and all the world becomes guilty before God. As Dr. Boyce expresses it, we are fallen. We're not on the way up, as today's optimistic exponents of the classical view would indicate. We are not sinful by the very nature of things, as the ancient Greeks would argue. We are not mere machines, as if we could be excused on the grounds of analysis. We are fallen. We are faithless, rebellious, filled with pride. And as a result, our only hope is in the grace of God by which he sends a redeemer who instead of being faithless was faithful, instead of being rebellious was obedient, instead of being filled with pride was one who actually, as the apostle said to the Philippians, humbled himself even to the death on the cross. As Dr. Packer suggested, modern man, conscious of his tremendous scientific achievement in recent years, naturally inclines to a very high opinion of himself. He views material wealth as, in any case, more important than moral character. And in the moral realm, he is resolutely kind to himself, treating small virtues as compensating for great vices and refusing to take seriously the idea that, morally speaking, there is anything much wrong with him. 
He tends to dismiss a bad conscience in himself as in others as an unhealthy psychological freak. A sign of disease and mental aberration rather than an index of moral reality. For modern man is convinced that in spite of all of his little picadillos, drinking, gambling, reckless living, fiddling, black and white lies, sharp practice in trading, dirty reading, what have you, he is at heart a thoroughly good fellow. And then as pagans do, and modern man's heart is pagan, make no mistake about that, he imagines God as a magnified image of himself and assumes that God shares his own complacency about himself. And so the thought of himself as a fallen creature once made in God's image, as a rebel against God's rule, as guilty and unclean in God's sight, and fit only for God's condemnation is something that never, ever enters his head. Nevertheless, the recognition that man is fallen is the first presupposition of the doctrine of grace. Secondly, another presupposition to the doctrine of grace is that man deserves condemnation. The word of God insists throughout that this world, which God in his goodness has made, is a moral world in which retribution is as basic a fact as breathing. The wages of sin is death. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after that the judgment. And when the Apostle Paul ministered to the Greeks in that unforgettable occasion on Mars Hill in Athens, he said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And so the great, tremendous, glorious fact of the resurrection in the past points with unerring finger to the absolute certainty of a judgment in the future for all men. Judgment is just as certain as fire burns and water drowns. Now, modern man's way is to turn a blind eye to all wrongdoing as safely as he possibly can. And the accepted maxim seems to be that as long as evil can be ignored, it should be. Mr. Biden has made that pretty clear. And one should only punish as a last resort and then only as far as necessary to prevent the evil from having grievous social consequences. But you see, the laws of God cannot be violated with impunity. The Holy Book says, and human experience verifies it, that men reap what they sow. The word of God says when one sows to the flesh, they shall of the flesh reap corruption. But of course, it also tells us the one who sows to the spirit shall from the spirit reap eternal life. And that brings us to another presupposition essential to an understanding of the doctrine of grace. And that is that man is spiritually impotent. Paul tells the Ephesians and us that he's dead in trespasses and sin. Now, Luther felt the terrible burden of his sin and guilt locked in the deadness of spiritual impotency. He literally exhausted himself in penances and pilgrimages, calling on saints and prostrating himself before relics and giving up everything men hold precious in life. A brilliant career, the hope of marriage, the promise of financial success, and in the end found no relief. He said... Often was I horrified at the name of Jesus, and when I regarded him on the cross, it was as if I had been struck by lightning, for I labored under the belief that I must, by my good works, seek to make Christ my gracious friend, and thereby reconcile an angry God. 
But he said, all to no avail. He discovered, as the great prophet had said, that the works of righteousness that we do are filthy rags in the sight of God. And his cry was the cry of the apostle when he said, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And so in speaking of salvation by grace, the apostle says, not of works lest any man should boast. And so grace is always contrasted with works. In our Lord's fascinating parable in the 18th chapter of Luke of the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee represents salvation by works. He tells God how good he is and nothing happens. Unacceptable to God. The publican, on the other hand, exemplifies salvation by grace. God be merciful to me, a sinner, acceptable by God. Works seek the merit, the favor of God. Grace bestows the unmerited favor of God. Works glorify men and magnify human effort. Grace glorifies God and magnifies divine love. Works lead to pride. Grace leads to humility. And work leaves a chasm between God and man and grace spans the chasm. Men tried on the basis of keeping the law on a grand scale through the centuries of forbearance, supplemented by the mighty ministry of the prophets. But never once was a human being presented righteous before God. And righteousness is an absolute essential if we are ever to be in the high court of heaven. Human experience verifies what the word of God declares by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Or as the Apostle says in Galatians 3.10, For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Romans 3.10, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. The history of man is a history of sin, one long, lurid record of fall and failure. And yet, modern man somehow insists that his respectability will guarantee God's acceptance of him. But the position of the word of God is made clear by Top Lady when he wrote, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And so it's against this dark background that the light of grace blazes in all of its brilliance. And that brings us to the characteristics of God's grace. And first of all, the grace of God is eternal. As Dr. Pink tells us, grace was planned before it was exercised and purposed before it was ever imparted. As the apostle writes to Timothy in that very last and final letter he ever wrote, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Listen, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world, the cosmos, began. The grace of God is free. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace. And then thirdly, the grace of God is sovereign. It started as sovereign because God exercised it toward and bestows it upon whom he pleases. In the passage we just read, even so might grace reign. And if grace reigns, then it must 
have a throne and the occupant of that throne has to be absolutely sovereign. And that's the reason that in Hebrews 4.16 we find the term the throne of his grace. And so the sovereign bestowal of the saving grace of God upon those who in themselves have no merit and for which there is no compensation, no works demanded from them, is truly the grace of God sovereignly bestowed. More than that, it is the favor of God to those who have absolutely nothing to make them worthy of such favor, who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. Grace can neither be bought or earned or achieved or won, and only those upon whom the Holy Spirit has already performed the irresistible work of the new birth experience the grace of God. It was Dr. Pink who wrote, as a result of that miracle, the spiritual blind eyes, spiritually blind eyes of the natural man are open to see God's truth. And the totally depraved will of the sinner is turned to enable him to brace Jesus Christ as his Savior. God is not under obligation to show his grace to anyone. He declares in Exodus 33:19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. If God were to show his grace to all of Adam's descendants, men would come to the conclusion that he was righteously obligated to take them to heaven as a compensation for allowing the human race to fall into sin. But God is not under any obligation to any of his creatures, and least of all those who are rebels against him. Packer wrote, ancient paganism thought of each god as bound to his worshippers by bonds of self-interest because he depended on their service and gifts for his welfare. Modern paganism has at the back of its mind a similar feeling that God is somehow obligated to love and help us little though we deserve it. By the way, this was the feeling that was voiced by that outstanding French free thinker who died muttering, God will forgive because that's his obligation. But that's not a well-founded conclusion. The God of the Bible does not depend upon human creatures for his well-being. As the apostle said to those Athenians on Mars Hill, God who made the world and all things in it, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth all life and breath to all things. We cannot make the claim that because we have sinned, he is bound to show his favor. All we can ever claim from him is justice. And justice means our certain condemnation. You see, grace is free in the sense of being self-originated and as proceeding from the one who was free not to be gracious. Only when it is seen that this is what decides man's destiny is when we come to an understanding of the biblical view of what grace is all about. Since salvation is a gift, certainly no one has a right to tell God upon whom he can bestow it. And yet, he never refuses anyone who comes to him in the way of his appointing. As Pink said, nothing riles the natural man and brings to the surface the innate inevitability of enmity against God than to press upon him the eternality of the freeness and the absolute sovereignty of divine grace. That God should have formed his purpose from everlasting without in any wise consulting the creatures to abasing for the unbroken heart. 
that grace can be earned by any effort of man is too self-emptying for self-righteousness and that grace singles out whom it pleases to be its favorite object arouses protests from haughty rebels. You see, the distinguishing grace of God is seen in saving people he has sovereignly singled out. Grace discriminates. God's grace makes difference. God chooses some, passes by others. By the way, the grace of God is manifested all through the Old Testament. From the opening chapters of the Old Testament, we find revelations and manifestations of the grace of God. Adam, by an act of disobedience, refused to be confirmed in that beautiful state of righteousness and became a lost sinner. At the fall of man, we have the manifold mercies of God manifested and demonstrated in that he is a gracious God who pours out his grace upon the sinner. There was no sign that Adam recognized his lost condition. There was no cry for mercy. There was no confession of sin. And yet we find that God dealt with him in grace. God sought Adam out that he might shower his grace upon him. He met Adam in his lost and ruined condition. And the first thing he did was to proclaim the promise of a coming Savior. In that great proto-evangelistic verse that's found in Genesis 3.15. By the way, and this fascinated me. Dr. Pentecost, in speaking about God's manifestation toward Adam of his grace, reminds us that in Genesis 3.21, God provided a covering for Adam's sin. It was an act of God's grace. And then in Genesis 3.24, God opened to Adam the prospect of access into his presence. And there we read that God drove out man and placed at the east end of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. And then listen to this suggestion. The usual interpretation is to view the cherubim as policemen who were stationed at the entrance of the garden to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back into the garden again. And then he makes this interesting interpretation, and I believe he's correct. He said, these cherubims with the flaming swords quite possibly were not policemen to prevent the sinners from coming, but guardians to keep the way of access open. God in the garden had set up a place of sacrifice where the lamb had been slain, whose blood covered Adam's sin and whose skin covered Adam's nakedness. The place of sacrifice was the divinely instituted place of meeting, and God graciously kept the way open so that sinners could come into his presence. Beautiful. The Old Testament, as we said, is filled with examples of the grace of God. It was a distinguishing grace which selected, for example, Abraham from among his idolatrous neighbors and made him the friend of God. Adam, Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, David, Isaiah, Zechariah, all testify to the marvelous grace of God. James Hervey reminds us that Manasseh was a monster of barbarity, for he caused his own children to pass through the fire and filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. He was adept in iniquity. He not only multiplied to an extravagant degree his own sacrilegious impieties, but he poisoned the principles and perverted the manners of his subjects, making them no worse and do worse than the most detestable heathen idolaters. The record is found, for example, in Second Chronicles 33. Yet, 
Through this superabundant grace, he was humbled, he was reformed, he became a child of forgiving love and an heir of immortal glory. God's grace was manifested in the New Testament, writes Hervey. Behold that bitter and bloody persecutor Saul, when breathing out threatenings and bent upon slaughter, he worried the lambs, God's precious ones, and put to death the disciples of Jesus. The havoc he committed, the inoffensive families he had already ruined, were not sufficient to assuage his vengeful spirit. They were only taste which, instead of glutting the bloodhound, made him all the more closely pursue their track. He was eagerly bent for their destruction. He was thirsty for violence and murder. And so eager in his insatiable thirst that he tells us in his own testimony he breathed out threatening and slaughter. And so his words were spears and arrows, his tongue a sharp sword. Certainly human judgment would have pronounced him a vessel of wrath destined to unavoidable damnation. Yet... Admire and adore the inexhaustible treasures of grace. This Saul is admitted into the goodly fellowship of the prophets. He's numbered with the noble army of martyrs. And he makes a distinguishing figure that we can never forget among the glorious company of the apostles. But, beloved, the greatest manifestation of grace is in the person of Jesus Christ. Though there were those in the Old Testament who could testify to the grace of God, God had never been manifest in a person until he came to us in Jesus Christ. And there he was, the grace of God embodied. This was the supreme manifestation of God's grace. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. After the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, John could say in John 1, 16 and 17 of... His fullness have all we receive from grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace, you see, is the love of God reaching out to a lost world in the person of his Son. And so the apostle says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet... For your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. It was not only a grace that caused him to break into our world with his great redemptive purpose, but it was a grace that made him willing to climb the hill of the skull and be impaled on the Roman rack for our sin, the just for the unjust, to reconcile us to God. The reason being that God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you see, the cross stands at the heart of divine love. The gospel of grace is the gospel of a crucified, risen Savior. That's what it's all about. That's why the apostle says, Moreover, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you received, and wherein you stand. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. For thousands and thousands of years, God has been trying to teach the world the great and glorious truth that he wants to deal with men in love and grace. It runs all through the Bible. All the way along, you follow this marvelous stream of grace that flows from the heart of God. And the very last promise in the closing chapter of Revelation, like the first promise in Eden, is the promise of God's grace. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely.
And so the whole of Revelation, the whole history of man, is encircled with the sovereign grace of God, the free gift of his love. And someone has very beautifully written, this is the believer's eternal confession. Grace found me a rebel, it leaves me a son. Grace found me wandering at the gates of hell, it led me through the gates of heaven. Grace devised a scheme of redemption, and justice never would, and reason never would. And it is grace that carries out the scheme. No sinner would ever have sought God but by grace. The thicket of Eden would have proved Adam's grave had not grace called him out. Saul would have lived and died the haughty, self-righteous persecutor had not grace laid him low. The thief would have continued breathing out his blasphemies had not grace arrested his tongue and tuned it to glory. The grace of God is proclaimed in the gospel. Oh my, my time is gone. Let me bring you a closing word. The grace of God is what brings victory into your life and mine. In that glorious passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, where the word of God says that we're saved not by works of righteousness, not by anything other than grace, not by any righteous thing that we do. For by grace he is saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's a marvelous conclusion. Because the apostle says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works with God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now that word workmanship in the Greek is a beautiful word. It's the word for poem. And by the way, in the Greek concept of whatever was great art, certainly the supreme artistic expression was the poem. And so, the Word of God says, by the miracle of God's grace, we who believe and trust this matchless Christ and experience His grace are the most magnificent expression of God's artistic ability. We are the most magnificent thing that God has ever made. And so, because that's true, we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That's why the Apostle said in any life situation, God's grace is sufficient. That's why grace abounds to us in every way as we live this life in Christ. His grace, matchless, marvelous, wonderful grace. We're saved by grace through faith and nothing else. Sola Scriptura tells us that. The scriptures, the scriptures alone, saved by grace. Our wonder